Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 498. Shh, it worked. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I am particularly well because it's Labor Day weekend and my older son came home for the weekend. Ah, <sighs> it worked. I didn't push. <laughs> And he came home for a visit. (laughs) And I couldn't be happier. We had a great Labor Day weekend. We got to go up and spend a couple of nights at a friend's place up in the Poconos on a lake. And it's beautiful. And if you're on Facebook, you may have seen the, the pictures of us at the waterfall, which when we went up last year, it was a cute little waterfall. That was it. This time it's been raining like crazy, as you probably know. And wow, was it a fearsome gazonga of water coursing down the mountainside. It was beautiful. It looked like we were in Hawaii, although the weather was a little cloudy and the water was a little cold, but still it was beautiful. And we just had a great time. So I did say that my recording rhythm was going to be wonky for a little while, but I think I'm figuring out how to pull this off. But one of the other side effects of me having a job and that I said I was going to tell you about as soon as I I figured out how to do this is that I'm not going to be able to keep doing two books. So Free Craftlet is going to continue and the premium feed is going to go away. So Room with a View is the last book we're doing. Now I do have the audio from The Importance of Being Earnest. And if I can get that edited, that will be the last, last premium book. If I can't get that edited for you within a month, then what's going to happen is I will have to stop the Patreon from offering the the $5 a month you get access to free audio because there won't be any more. You're certainly welcome to keep donating if you want to through there. That's fine. The app will continue to be free. That is not going to go back to being a paid app. However, at some point, and I will warn you beforehand, but it would be around the same time. If I can do earnest within a month, then it'll continue to be premium audio, at least until earnest is done. But I'm going to give you as, as much of a heads up as I can about that. I'm going to release a, a tiny little clip on the app feed as well, just as a heads up in case you're not listening in real time so that you know well in advance when things are going to shut off. Because what is going to happen is all of the premium audio, when I tell you it's going to, it will go away. It will evaporate. It will no longer be available on the app. I have no idea what's going to happen on Patreon, but my guess is the same thing, is that those posts are going to get locked. The one place where the premium books that are out there right now will continue to be out for about the next six months will be the membership on our site. There just won't be any new audio. So if you want to get the premium membership so that you can download all of the audio that is available for you on that page, which is, it goes back a few books, that's another option. But at some point I will also close that because there won't be any reason to exchange $5 a month for new premium audio. There won't be any. But again, before anything happens, I will put out a newsletter. So if you signed up to receive the newsletters, you'll get that then. If you are on the app, you will see a brief audio message that will go out to you. If you're on Patreon, I still have to get some answers to some questions that I put out there. Once I have firm information on that, you will see a Patreon notification pop up for you telling you what you can do. So I think that's it with all of that. I have gotten back into crocheting creepy cute crochet. You might remember, oh, many, many years ago, five years ago, the creepy cute crochet book came out and I was doing little things like the ninjas for the kids or the little Cthulhu doll. 
since we have this fabulous woman at work who hosts the, I think they call it the Warm and Fuzzy Fundraiser in early December, where people just bring stuff they make. Like one guy at work, did I mention this last week, brews beer on the side. So you can do the silent auction for that and you just let him know what kind of beer is your favorite beer. And two months later, he'll bring you a six pack of beer made specially for you. Other people have art, paintings, photography, other knitted and crocheted goods. Oh my gosh, just all sorts of stuff. So that's kind of cool. And I thought I should throw something into the, the mix and I can do the crochet fast. So I've been playing around with doing the creepy cute crochet dolls again. I did make the, the office zombie, <laughs> which I actually have posted on the edge of my, my desk so people can gaze in wonderment at the glory that is the zombie office worker. Cthulhu will be up there tomorrow. Very excited about that as well. And I'm still doing the, the English paper piecing. That is, is something that I really love. And boy, it would be nice if I could ride a train into work instead of having to drive. Just think of all that I could get done. Huh. But no such luck right now. If the office moves, maybe I'll get lucky. If the office doesn't move, maybe I'll get lucky with a carpool. I don't know. Either way, we have two, count them two chapters of Anne of Green Gables today. Chapter 31 and 32. Chapter 31 is called Where the Brook and River Meet. And chapter 32 is called The Pass List is Out. This will all make sense shortly. And if you are up on your Longfellow or maybe your Tennyson, you might recognize that the title of chapter 31, Where the Brook and River Meet, is a callback to Longfellow's poem, Maidenhood. Sounds appropriate, doesn't it? The actual line from the poem is, Standing with reluctant feet, where the brook and river meet, womanhood and childhood fleet. And that is stanza three, or it's from stanza three, and the poem was written in 1842. So, one more literary illusion from LMM. And along with that, we have several biblical illusions as well. We've got Psalm 19, verses 1 and 5. We've got reference to Job and Luke. Job 38, verse 3. Luke, chapter 12, verse 35. And that one is one that we've heard before. Gird your loins. It just means getting ready to do battle. If you gird your loins, you have a big, thick, heavy belt. Probably one that's going to help you carry your weapon of choice into battle. There is also a reference to Alexander Pope's essay on criticism from 1711, so you might recognize that as well. There is a term that I'm pretty sure we have heard, at least in Dracula, and several times else, I believe, which is a branch railroad. This is a railroad line that connects a main line to a smaller town. So it's not a, a line that is necessarily going to get you somewhere else where you can connect to a train that will get you to somewhere else still further on, but it is a train line that will get you somewhere. And that somewhere is usually a smaller place, and it's just a branch on the tree of train track. And just to make your eyes bug out of your head at how fast all of this grew in Canada at the time, in 1848, Okay, 1848, there were 22 miles of railroad track in all of Canada. 1848. In 1850, so two years later, there's 66 miles. Okay? And then in 1860, 10 years after that, there are 2,065 miles of train track on the ground in Canada. Can you say boom? Wow, that is like crazy fast growth. And it made a huge difference for so many people, including. Anne. She, as you know, is working towards taking the entrance exam to the high school slash junior college level. What is it? In Slovakia, my husband said it was called gymnasium, I think, was the high school slash college or junior college level. It's strange. The, the United States, obviously, we don't have a test to get into high school. We sort of have a test to get into 
junior college sometimes. There are some junior colleges that that have uh, gatekeepers on them, but mostly we have in the U.S. the SAT, Scholastic Aptitude Test, and alternatively the ACT. And those are just tests to see if you learned what you were supposed to learn in high school so that you can go on and do well in college. Just another way to judge whether you're ready or not. Very similar to what is going on with Anne. A school's grades or a school's scores on the school's tests were not enough to get you into this school. You had to pass their test. And not only did you have to pass their test, but you had to know that the results of that test were going to be published in the local newspapers. Right? So no pressure, because it's not just like you and your family are going to know if you blew it. Everybody's going to know if you blew it. So that's a little, that's a little scary. That would have been hard. And there is a, there's a passing score, there's a failing score, but there's also a third option, which is you could pass with a, a conditional notice put on you, meaning they saw something in your work that indicated that you might be able to pull it off, you might be able to do well, but they were only going to pass you on condition of seeing a little bit more work from you in that particular area. So if it was English, you'd be conditioned, you'd have a pass grade that was conditioned on English or conditioned on geometry or whatever. So so I thought that was kind of interesting and a smart way to do a high stakes test like that. When you see you see the potential is there, but it's not quite where you want it to be, give the kid a chance to bring that grade up. I love it. Just like in a War of the Worlds, actually, there's a reference to cramming. We still use that term in the United States. I don't know if that is a universal term, but the idea of really pushing yourself yourself to study super hard, memorizing as much as you possibly can at the last minute. However, this is not you're learning stuff for the first time and cramming it into your head and memorizing it at the last minute. This is, you've done all your work. You've done all your studying. You have done as much as you can. Now you are just going to review, 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 until you can't say it anymore. A hundred percent of the time before you take the test. I have done that. I have not found that to be particularly successful for me. I tend to freak myself out and it's never pleasant. So you will hear a reference to cramming. You will also hear a reference to a match safe. It is what you might expect. It is a little safe, usually metal box, where you can store matches to keep them safe. These are the sulfur-tipped matches, the kind that if you're really clever, you can use a, a thumbnail to light because you can use your thumbnail to mix the sulfur part. I'm making the action. <laughs> like that's going to translate through the microphone. The little white tip on the non-safety matches. Safety matches don't have this. The old school matches had a little white tip. You could mix the chemicals with your thumbnail and go poof and make the match light on fire. And it looks really cool when you do it. So that has nothing to do with a match safe, but it does indicate why you might want to have a match safe. You don't want matches that can light like that just casually rubbing up against anything else. That would be bad. You're also going to hear a reference to something that I don't know if this is still done. I couldn't find any references to this more recently than like 1890, but it is coiling hay. The idea is this. If you have gone through and you have cut down your, your red clover or whatever it is that's going to become your hay, you've cut it down. It is lying flat on the ground. Normally, that's going to be fine. You can let it sit there for a little while. If a storm is coming, this is going to spell disaster because it's really hard to effectively and efficiently dry out an entire field of wet hay. Instead, what you would do is if you were lucky enough to have a windrow, it was a, a big rake that you could pull by horse. And uh, as soon as enough of the flattened on the ground hay was bunched up in the giant fork that you're driving, dragging behind the horse, as soon as it, it built up enough so that you were going to start pushing stuff out the side instead of effectively raking it forward, uh, you could push a pedal on the 
contraption that you're sitting on that's attached to this big rake, and it would lift the rake up off the ground, allowing this giant jelly roll of hay to lay there, and then you'd start dragging for the next windrow. So that would leave you about a, a three-foot-high, four- five-foot-wide big lump of hay. Then people would come along behind you and take that big lump of hay and rake it up into what they called coils, but were really kind of like cones or teepees of hay. Why would you do this, you ask, just like I asked? And the answer is this. If you do it right, those of you who have spun, I know you can visualize this. If you do this right, you will wind up creating vertical lines going up the sides of the cone. You already see where this is going, don't you? You have those vertical lines. You make the hay go up towards that point, that kind of pinnacle on, on the teepee, on the stack of hay, so that as it rains, the rain for the most part falls onto the coil, rolls down through those horizontal grooves that you now have created with the hay, the individual stalks of hay, and it goes back into the ground and the dirt, which means that the hay on the inside ideally is completely dry. The hay on the outside is going to get hit by the sun first, and it's going to have access to the most air right away, and it should be able to dry out more quickly to match the moisture content of the hay that was protected on the inside. It turns out that if your hay is not dried properly and you go and you put it in your barn, the moist humidity that will eventually leach out of the damp hay, that can become a problem and can become a fire hazard, especially if it's a really, really hot summer. All sorts of bad things can happen. It's like corn silos catching fire because the, the gases from the corn are flammable. And, and then you get an explosive pile of corn. And it's not fun like popcorn. It's like a big fire in a silo. So all this stuff that you can learn about hay and corn just out there on the internet. <laughs> I love it. I will try and link to a couple of pages so that you can see. It's hard to find an actual accurate picture of hay coils, but you'll get the idea from the pictures that I, that I was able to find. So that was kind of cool. And that is it. Let's listen to chapters 31 and 32 of Anne of Green Gables, read for us by the awesome and wonderful Kim Zuckert. Here we go. Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read by Kim Zuckert. Chapter 31, Where the Brook and River Meet. Anne had her good summer and enjoyed it wholeheartedly. She and Diana fairly lived outdoors, reveling in all the delights that Lover's Lane and the Dryad's Bubble and Willowmere and Victoria Island afforded. Marilla offered no objections to Anne's gypsyings. The Spencervale doctor, who had come the night Minnie May had the croup, met Anne at the house of a patient one afternoon early in vacation, looked her over sharply, screwed up his mouth, shook his head, and sent a message to Marilla Cuthbert by another person. It was... Keep that red-headed girl of yours in the open air all summer and don't let her read books until she gets more spring into her step. This message frightened Marilla wholesomely. She read Anne's death warrant by consumption in it unless it was scrupulously obeyed. As a result, Anne had the golden summer of her life as far as freedom and frolic went. She walked, rode, buried, and dreamed to her heart's content— and when September came, she was bright-eyed and alert with a step that would have satisfied the Spencervale doctor and a heart full of ambition and zest once more. "'I feel just like studying with might and main,' she declared, as she brought her books down from the attic. "'Oh, you good old friends, I'm glad to see your honest faces once more. Yes, even you, Geometry.' I've had a perfectly beautiful summer, Marilla, and now I'm rejoicing as a strong man to run a race, as Mr. Allen said last Sunday. Doesn't Mr. Allen preach magnificent sermons? Mrs. Lynn said he is improving every day, and the first thing we know some city church will gobble him up and then we'll be left enough to turn to and break in another green preacher. But I don't see the use of meeting trouble halfway, do you, Marilla? I think it would be better just to enjoy Mr. Allen while we have him. 
If I were a man, I think I'd be a minister. They can have such an influence for good if their theology is sound, and it must be thrilling to preach splendid sermons and stir your hearers' hearts. Why can't women be ministers, Marilla? I asked Mrs. Lynde that, and she was shocked and said it would be a scandalous thing. She said there might be female ministers in the States, and she believed there was, but thank goodness we hadn't gotten to that stage in Canada yet, and she hoped we never would. But I don't see why. I think women would make splendid ministers. When there's a social to be got up, or a church tea, or anything to raise money, the women have to turn to and do the work. I'm sure Mrs. Lynde can pray every bit as well as Superintendent Bell, and I've no doubt she could preach too, with a little practice. "'Yes, I believe she could,' said Marilla, dryly. "'She does plenty of unofficial preaching as it is. "'Nobody has much of a chance to go wrong in Avonlea with Rachel to oversee them.' "'Marilla,' said Anne, in a burst of confidence, "'I want to tell you something and ask you what you think about it. "'It has worried me terribly, on Sunday afternoons, that is, "'when I think specially about such matters. "'I do really want to be good, and when I'm with you or Mrs. Allen or Miss Stacy. I want it more than ever, and I want to do just what would please you and what you would approve of. But mostly when I'm with Mrs. Lynde, I feel desperately wicked, and as if I wanted to go and do the very thing she tells me I oughtn't to do. I feel irresistibly tempted to do it. Now, what do you think is the reason I feel like that? Do you think it's because I'm really bad and unregenerate? Marilla looked dubious for a moment. Then she laughed. "'If you are, I guess I am too, Anne, for Rachel often has that very effect on me. "'I sometimes think she'd have more of an influence for good, as you say yourself, "'if she didn't keep nagging people to do right. "'There should have been a special commandment against nagging. "'But there, I shouldn't talk so. "'Rachel is a good Christian woman, and she means well. "'There isn't a kinder soul in Avonlea, and she never shirks her share of work.' "'I'm very glad you feel the same,' said Anne decidedly. "'It's so encouraging.' I shan't worry so much over that after this. But I dare say there'll be other things to worry me. They keep coming up new all the time. Things to perplex you, you know. You settle one question and there's another right after. There are so many things to be thought over and decided when you're beginning to grow up. It keeps me busy all the time thinking them over and deciding what is right. It's a serious thing to grow up, isn't it, Marilla? But when I have such good friends as you and Matthew and Mrs. Allen and Miss Stacy, I ought to grow up successfully, and I'm sure it will be my own fault if I don't. I feel it's a great responsibility because I have only the one chance. If I don't grow up right, I can't go back and begin over again. I've grown two inches this summer, Marilla. Mr. Gillis measured me at Ruby's party. I am so glad you made my new dresses longer. That dark green one is so pretty, and it was sweet of you to put on the flounce. Of course, I know it wasn't really necessary, but flounces are so stylish this fall, and Josie Pius flounces on all her dresses. I know I'll be able to study better because of mine. I shall have such a comfortable feeling deep down in my mind about that flounce. Well, it's worth something to have that, admitted Marilla. Miss Stacy came back to Avonlea School and found all her pupils eager for work once more. Especially did the Queen's class gird up their loins for the fray, for at the end of the coming year, dimly shadowing their pathway already, loomed up that fateful thing known as the entrance, at the thought of which one and all felt their hearts sink into their very shoes. Suppose they did not pass. That thought was doomed to haunt Anne through the waking hours of that winter, Sunday afternoons inclusive, to the almost entire exclusion of moral and theological problems. When Anne had bad dreams, she found herself staring miserably at past lists of the entrance exams, where Gilbert Blythe's name was blazoned at the top, and in which hers did not appear at all. But it was a jolly, busy, happy, swift-flying winter, Schoolwork was as interesting, class rivalry as absorbing as of yore, new worlds of thought, feeling, and ambition, fresh, fascinating fields of unexplored knowledge seemed to be opening out before Anne's eager eyes. Hills peeped o'er hill, and Alps on Alps arose. Much of all this was due to Miss Stacy's tactful, careful, broad-minded guidance. She led her class to think and explore and discover for themselves— and encouraged straying from the old beaten paths to a degree that quite shocked Mrs. Lynde and the school trustees, who viewed all innovations on established methods rather dubiously. 
Apart from her studies, Anne expanded socially, for Marilla, mindful of the Spencervale doctor's dictum, no longer vetoed occasional outings. The debating club flourished and gave several concerts. There were one or two parties almost verging on grown-up affairs. There were sleigh drives and skating frolics galore. Between times, Anne grew, shooting up so rapidly that Marilla was astonished one day when they were standing side by side to find the girl was taller than herself. "'Why, Anne, how you've grown!' she said, almost unbelievingly. A sigh followed on the words. Marilla felt a queer regret over Anne's inches. The child she had learned to love had vanished somehow, and here was this tall, serious-eyed girl of fifteen, with the thoughtful brows and the proudly poised little head in her place. Marilla loved the girl as much as she had loved the child, but she was conscious of a queer, sorrowful sense of loss. And that night, when Anne had gone to prayer meeting with Diana, Marilla sat alone in the wintry twilight and indulged in the weakness of a cry. Matthew, coming in with a lantern, caught her at it and gazed at her in such consternation that Marilla had to laugh through her tears. "'I was thinking about Anne,' she explained. "'She's got to be such a big girl, and she'll probably be away from us next winter. "'I'll miss her terrible.' "'She'll be able to come home often,' comforted Matthew, "'to whom Anne was as yet, and always would be, "'the little eager girl he had brought home from Bright River "'on that June evening four years before. "'The Branch Railroad will be built to Carmody by that time.' "'It won't be the same as having her here all the time.' sighed Marilla gloomily, determined to enjoy her luxury of grief uncomforted. But there, men can't understand these things. There were other changes in Anne no less real than the physical change. For one thing, she became much quieter. Perhaps she thought all the more and dreamed as much as ever, but she certainly talked less. Marilla noticed and commented on this also. "'You don't chatter half as much as you used to, Anne, nor use half as many big words. What has come over you?' Anne colored and laughed a little, as she dropped her book and looked dreamily out of the window, where big, fat, red buds were bursting out on the creeper in response to the lure of the spring sunshine. "'I don't know. I don't want to talk as much,' she said, denting her chin thoughtfully with her forefinger. "'It's nicer to think dear, pretty thoughts and keep them in one's heart,' like treasures. I don't like to have them laughed at or wondered over. And somehow I don't want to use big words any more. It's almost a pity, isn't it, now that I'm really growing big enough to say them if I did want to? It's fun to be almost grown up in some ways. But it's not the kind of fun I expected, Marilla. There's so much to learn and do and think that there isn't time for big words. Besides, Miss Stacy says the short ones are much stronger and better. She makes us all write our essays as simply as possible. It was hard at first. I was so used to crowding in all the fine big words I could think of, and I thought of any number of them. But I've got used to it now, and I see it so much better. What has become of your story club? I haven't heard you speak of it for a long time. The story club isn't in existence any longer. We hadn't time for it. Anyhow, I think we'd gotten tired of it. It was silly to be writing about love and murder and elopements and mysteries. Miss Stacy sometimes has us write a story for training and composition, but she won't let us write anything but what might happen in Avonlea in our own lives, and she criticizes it very sharply and makes us criticize our own too. I never thought my compositions had so many faults until I began to look for them myself. I felt so ashamed I wanted to give up altogether, but Miss Stacy said I could learn to write well if I only trained myself to be my own severest critic. "'And so I'm trying to.' "'You've only two more months before the entrance,' said Marilla. "'Do you think you'll be able to get through?' Anne shivered. "'I don't know. Sometimes I think I'll be all right, and then I get horribly afraid. "'We've studied hard, and Miss Stacy has drilled us thoroughly, but we mayn't get through for all that. "'We've each got a stumbling block. Mine is geometry, of course, and Jane's is Latin, "'and Ruby and Charlie's is algebra, and Josie's is arithmetic.' Moody Spurgeon says he feels it in his bones that he's going to fail in English history. Miss Stacy's going to give us examinations in June just as hard as we'll have at the entrance, and Marcus just as strictly, so we'll have some idea. I wish it was all over, Marilla. It haunts me. Sometimes I wake up in the night and wonder what I'll do if I don't pass. Why, go to school next year and try again, 
said Marilla, unconcernedly. "'Oh, I don't believe I'd have the heart for it. "'It would be such a disgrace to fail, "'especially if Gil if the others passed, "'and I get so nervous in an examination "'that I'm likely to make a mess of it. "'I wish I had nerves like Jane Andrews. "'Nothing rattles her.' "'Anne sighed, and dragging her eyes "'from the witcheries of the spring world, "'the beckoning day of breeze and blue "'and the green things upspringing in the garden, "'buried herself resolutely in her book.' There would be other springs, but if she did not succeed in passing the entrance, Anne felt convinced that she would never recover sufficiently to enjoy them. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 The Pass List is Out With the end of June came the close of the term and the close of Miss Stacy's rule in Avonlea School. Anne and Diana walked home that evening feeling very sober indeed, Red eyes and damp handkerchiefs bore convincing testimony to the fact that Miss Stacy's farewell words must have been quite as touching as Mr. Phillips's had been under similar circumstances three years before. Diana looked back at the schoolhouse from the foot of the Spruce Hill and sighed deeply. "'It does seem as if it was the end of everything, doesn't it?' she said dismally. "'You oughtn't feel half as badly as I do,' said Anne." "'hunting vainly for a dry spot on her handkerchief. "'You'll be back again next winter, "'but I suppose I've left the dear old school forever. "'If I have good luck, that is. "'It won't be a bit the same. "'Miss Stacy won't be there, nor you, nor Jane, nor Ruby, probably. "'I shall have to sit all alone, "'for I couldn't bear to have another desk made after you. "'Oh, we have had jolly times, haven't we, Anne? "'It's dreadful to think they're all over.' Two big tears rolled down by Diana's nose. "'If you would stop crying, I could,' said Anne imploringly. "'Just as soon as I put away my hanky, I see you brimming up, and that starts me off again. "'As Mrs. Lynde says, if you can't be cheerful, be as cheerful as you can.' "'After all, I dare say I'll be back next year. "'This is one of the times I know I'm not going to pass. "'They're getting alarmingly frequent.' "'Why, you came out splendidly in the exams Miss Stacy gave.' "'Yes, but those exams didn't make me nervous. "'When I think of the real thing, you can't imagine "'what a horrid, cold, fluttery feeling comes around my heart. "'And then my number is thirteen, "'and Josie Pye says it's so unlucky. "'I am not superstitious, and I know it can make no difference. "'But I still wish it wasn't thirteen. "'I do wish I was going in with you.' said Diana. Wouldn't we have a perfectly elegant time? But I suppose you'll have to cram in the evenings. No, Miss Stacy has made us promise not to open a book at all. She said it would only tire and confuse us and we are to go out walking and not think about the exams at all and go to bed early. It's good advice, but I expect it will be hard to follow. Good advice is apt to be, I think. Prissy Andrews told me that she sat up half the night every night of her entrance week and crammed for dear life, and I had determined to sit up at least as long as she did. It was so kind of your Aunt Josephine to ask me to stay at Beechwood while I'm in town. You'll write to me while you're in, won't you? I'll write Tuesday night and tell you how the first day goes, promised Anne. I'll be haunting the post office Wednesday, vowed Diana. Anne went to town the following Monday, and on Wednesday, Diana haunted the post office, as agreed, and got her letter. "'Dearest Diana,' wrote Anne, "'here it is, Tuesday night, and I'm writing this in the library at Beechwood. Last night I was horribly lonely all alone in my room and wished so much you were with me. I couldn't cram, because I'd promised Miss Stacy not to, but it was as hard to keep from opening my history as it used to be to keep from reading a story before my lessons were learned.' This morning, Miss Stacy came for me, and we went to the academy, calling for Jane and Ruby and Josie on our way. Ruby asked me to feel her hands, and they were as cold as ice. Josie said I looked as if I hadn't slept a wink, and she didn't believe I was strong enough to stand the grind of the teacher's course even if I did get through. There are times and seasons even yet when I don't feel that I've made any great headway in learning to like Josie Pye. When we reached the academy, there were scores of students there from all over the island, the first person we saw was Moody Spurgeon sitting on the steps and muttering away to himself. Jane asked him what on earth he was doing, and he said he was repeating the multiplication table over and over to steady his nerves and for pity's sake not to interrupt him, because if he stopped for a moment he got frightened and forgot everything he ever knew, but the multiplication table kept all his facts firmly in their proper place. 
When we were assigned to our rooms, Miss Stacy had to leave us. Jane and I sat together, and Jane was so composed that I envied her. No need of the multiplication table for good, steady, sensible Jane. I wondered if I looked as I felt, and if they could hear my heart thumping clear across the room. Then a man came in and began distributing the English examination sheets. My hands grew cold then, and my head fairly whirled around as I picked it up. Just one awful moment, Diana. I felt exactly as I did four years ago when I asked Marilla if I might stay at Green Gables. And then everything cleared up in my mind and my heart began beating again. I forgot to say that it had stopped altogether, for I knew I could do something with that paper anyhow. At noon we went home for dinner, and then back again for history in the afternoon. The history was a pretty hard paper, and I got dreadfully mixed up in the dates. Still, I think I did fairly well today. But, oh, Diana... Tomorrow the geometry exam comes off, and when I think of it, it takes every bit of determination I possess to keep from opening my Euclid. If I thought the multiplication table would help me any, I would recite it from now until tomorrow morning. I went down to see the other girls this evening. On my way, I met Moody Spurgeon wandering distractedly around. He said he knew he'd failed in history, and he was born to be a disappointment to his parents, and he was going home on the morning train, and it would be easier to be a carpenter than a minister anyhow. I cheered him up and persuaded him to stay till the end, because it would be unfair to Miss Stacy if he didn't. Sometimes I've wished I was born a boy, but when I see Moody Spurgeon, I'm always glad I'm a girl, and not his sister. Ruby was in hysterics when I reached their boarding house. She had just discovered a fearful mistake she had made in her English paper. When she recovered, we went uptown and had an ice cream. How we wished you had been with us. Oh, Diana, if only the geometry examination were over— but there, as Mrs. Lynde would say, the sun will go on rising and setting whether I fail in geometry or not. That is true, but not especially comforting. I think I'd rather it didn't go on if I failed. Yours devotedly, Anne. The geometry examination and all the others were over in due time, and Anne arrived home on Friday evening, rather tired but with an air of chastened triumph about her. Diana was over at Green Gables when she arrived, and they met as if they had parted for years. "'You old darling, it's perfectly splendid to see you back again. It seems like an age since you went to town, and, oh, Anne, how did you get along?' "'Pretty well, I think, in everything but the geometry. I don't know whether I passed it or not, and I have a creepy, crawly presentiment that I didn't. Oh, how good it is to be back. Green Gables is the dearest, loveliest spot in the world.' "'How did the others do?' The girls say they know they didn't pass, but I think they did pretty well. Josie said the geometry was so easy a child of ten could do it. Moody Spurgeon still thinks he failed in history, and Charlie says he failed in algebra, but we don't really know anything about it and won't until the pass list is out. That won't be for a fortnight. Fancy living a fortnight in such suspense. I wish I could go to sleep and never wake up until it's over. Diana knew it would be useless to ask how Gilbert Blythe had fared, so she merely said, "'Oh, you'll pass all right. Don't worry. "'I'd rather not pass at all than not come out pretty well up on the list,' flashed Anne, by which she meant, and Diana knew she meant, that success would be incomplete and bitter if she did not come out ahead of Gilbert Blythe. With this end in view, Anne had strained every nerve during the examinations. So had Gilbert. They had met and passed each other on the street a dozen times without any sign of recognition, and every time Anne had held her head a little higher and had wished a little more earnestly that she had made friends with Gilbert when he asked her and vowed a little more determinedly to surpass him in the examination. She knew that all Avonlea Jr. was wondering which would come out first. She even knew that Jimmy Glover and Ned Wright had a bet on the question and that Josie Pye had said there was no doubt in the world that Gilbert would be first and she felt that her humiliation would be unbearable if she failed. But she had another and nobler motive for wishing to do well. She wanted to pass high for the sake of Matthew and Marilla, especially Matthew. Matthew had declared to her his conviction that she would beat the whole island. That, Anne felt, was something it would be foolish to hope for even in the wildest dreams. But she did hope fervently that she would be among the first ten at least, so that she might see Matthew's kindly brown eyes gleam with pride in her achievement. That, she felt, would be sweet reward indeed for all her hard work and patient grubbing among unimaginative equations and conjugations. At the end of the fortnight, 
Anne took to haunting the post office also, in the distracted company of Jane, Ruby, and Josie, opening the Charlottetown dailies with shaking hands and cold, sink-away feelings as bad as any experienced during the entrance week. Charlie and Gilbert were not above doing this, too, but Moody Spurgeon stayed resolutely away. "'I haven't got the grit to go there and look at a paper in cold blood,' he told Anne. "'I'm just going to wait until somebody comes and tells me suddenly whether I passed or not.' When three weeks had gone by without the pass list appearing, Anne began to feel that she really couldn't stand the strain much longer. Her appetite failed and her interest in Avonlea doings languished. Mrs. Lynde wanted to know what else you could expect with a Tory superintendent of education at the head of affairs, and Matthew, noting Anne's paleness and indifference and the lagging steps that bore her home from the post office every afternoon, began seriously to wonder if he hadn't better vote grit at the next election. But one evening the news came. Anne was sitting at her open window, for the time forgetful of the woes of examinations and the cares of the world, as she drank in the beauty of the summer dusk, sweet-scented with flower breaths from the garden below, and sibilant and rustling from the stir of poplars. The eastern sky above the firs was flushed faintly pink from the reflection of the west, and Anne was wondering dreamily if the spirit of color looked like that, when she saw Diana come flying down through the firs, over the log bridge, and up the slope, with a fluttering newspaper in her hand. Anne sprang to her feet, knowing at once what that paper contained. The pass list was out. Her head whirled and her heart beat until it hurt her. She could not move a step. It seemed an hour to her before Diana came rushing along the hall and burst into her room without even knocking, so great was her excitement. "'Anne, you've passed!' she cried. "'Pass the very first! "'You and Gilbert both, your ties, but your name is first. "'Oh, I'm so proud!' "'Diana flung the paper on the table and herself on Anne's bed, "'utterly breathless and incapable of further speech. "'Anne lighted the lamp, oversetting the match safe "'and using up half a dozen matches before her shaking hands could accomplish the task. "'Then she snatched up the paper. "'Yes!' She had passed. There was her name at the very top of a list of two hundred. That moment was worth living for. You did just splendidly, Anne, puffed Diana, recovering sufficiently to sit up and speak, for Anne, starry-eyed and rapt, had not uttered a word. Father brought the paper home from Bright River not ten minutes ago. It came out on the afternoon train, you know, and won't be here to, until t tomorrow by mail. And when I saw the pass list, I just rushed over like a wild thing. You've all passed, every one of you, Moody, Spurgeon and all, though he's conditioned in history. Jane and Ruby did pretty well. They're halfway up, and so did Charlie. Josie just scraped through with three marks to spare, but you'll see she'll put on as many airs as if she'd led. Won't Miss Stacy be delighted? Oh, Anne, what does it feel like to see your name at the head of a pass list like that? If it were me, I know I'd go I'd go crazy with joy. I'm pretty near crazy as it is, but you're as calm and cool as a spring evening. I'm, I'm just dazzled inside, said Anne. I, I want to say a hundred things, and I can't find the words to say them in. I never dreamed of this. Yes, I did, too, just once. I let myself think once, what should I do if I came out first? Quakingly, you know, for it seems so vain and presumptuous to think that I could leave the island. Excuse me a minute, Diana. I must run right out to the field to tell Matthew. Then we'll go up the road and tell the good news to the others. They hurried to the hayfield below the barn where Matthew was coiling hay, and as luck would have it, Mrs. Lynde was talking to Marilla at the lane fence. Oh, Matthew, exclaimed Anne, I've passed, and I'm first. Or one of the first. I'm not vain, but I'm thankful. Well, now I always said it, said Matthew, gazing at the pass list delightedly. I knew you could beat them all easy. You've done pretty well, I must say, Anne, said Marilla, trying to hide her extreme pride in Anne from Mrs. Rachel's critical eye. But that good soul said heartily, I just guess she has done well, and far be it from me to be backward in saying it. You're a credit to your friends, Anne, that's what, and we're all proud of you. That night, Anne, who had wound up the delightful evening with a serious little talk with Mrs. Allen at the manse, knelt sweetly by her open window in a great sheen of moonshine, 
and murmured a prayer of gratitude and aspiration that came straight from her heart. There was in it thankfulness for the past and reverent petition for the future, and when she slept on her white pillow, her dreams were as fair and bright and beautiful as maidenhood might desire. End of chapter 32 all right, so go, Anne, go, Anne. She did it. I'm so excited. It never happened to me in my life <laughs> that any one of those moments where you're like, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope I studied so hard. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope again. That's great. I hope, you, you know, whatever. No, wasn't in the cards for me. So glad it was in the cards for Anne. That's awesome. And Moody Spurgeon. He he did it, mostly. He got conditioned in history, but that's okay. He can show them his work later. And that is pretty awesome. I also love that, that Anne said that you can study better if you have a proper flounce on your dress. I never tried that in school. Perhaps that's why I didn't get the best score in class. I, I need to think about that a little bit more. Anne may have hit on something really important. But I, I loved, especially because of the timing of all of this, I loved Marilla's sitting down and having a good cry over Anne growing up and, you know, becoming a, a complete person and heading out into the world and all that. It's, uh, it's an exciting time. It's a hard time, she said, thinking of her own son, but an interesting time. I also saved this for after you listened. You know, early on in the first chapter, Miss Rachel had made the crack about women being preachers. Oh, thank goodness. I guess down in the States, they've got people doing that, but thank goodness we haven't gotten there in Canada yet. Well, actually, women could be lay preachers very early on, especially if you were looking at the dissenter religions, Quakers, Methodists, groups where there was a, an emphasis on being moved by the Holy Spirit, kind of the Anne Hutchinson story. If you remember from when we did the Scarlet Letter uh, Anne Hutchinson was a dissenter in the Massachusetts Bay Colony who left and was part of the group that founded Rhode Island because she felt the spirit and she wanted to get up and speak in meeting and share her understanding of holy text. And that was not cool once William Bradford died. That was not cool in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, so she went elsewhere. But these, these groups of Christians who allowed for this being moved by the Holy Spirit concept uh, were a little bit more friendly towards women being ministers. And to that effect, by 1888, there were 20 women total in the United States serving officially as pastors. That's not counting the Quakers, because in the Quakers, they had about 350 women who were and because of the way Quakerism works, they weren't really the pastor. They were, they were lay speakers. They were friends who spoke at meetings. But after the 1888 cutoff, you started to see Methodists, Congregationalists, Baptists, uh, Universalists, and Unitarian denominations, which became Unitarian Universalists. They were the first groups to officially ordain women. You had the Presbyterian and the Anglican church and the Episcopalian church, they were a little bit slower to get on with that. So the ball was already rolling pretty strongly when Miss Rachel made her comment, which makes it kind of funny as well. So that was something I thought you might like to know. I also loved, loved that Miss Stacy told Anne not to cram. This is hard advice to take when you are nervous about a test, but it's so important. You've already done all the good hard work. Cramming is not only not going to help you, it is going to probably make you get really nervous, not sleep, and screw up because you're so tired. The other thing that I would add to Miss Stacy's excellent advice is eat protein. <laughs> the morning of the test, eat protein. Do not eat chocolate-covered sugar bombs worst thing you can do. You'll wind up having a blood sugar low right when you need to be on your game during the test. Protein. And heavy protein, like slowly digesting protein. Really important. So yay for Miss Stacy. I completely concur. And then on the I do not concur side of things, Josie Pye, as they're walking in, as they're walking in, 
giving Anne such a hard time? As you're walking into a test saying that Anne looked like she hadn't slept a wink and Josie didn't believe she was strong enough to stand the grind of the teacher's course, even if she did get through? I mean, seriously, you have to be a really huge louse to do something like that. I'm sorry. I have very little tolerance for people who behave like that. Oh, I was so upset when I read that. And I'm not entirely sure why that triggered me way more than anything else Josie Pye has done or said. But boy, did it. Ah, oh, that got me upset. You can tell. So I don't feel like I have made any headway in learning to like Josie Pye. I will admit that Lucy Maud Montgomery's point of view on this is probably a little biased. And so I'm not given very much ammunition with which I could force myself to start to learn to like Josie Pye. At the same time, ew, just ew. We don't need people like that. <sighs> what we do need more of is more Anne of Green Gables, which you will get in the next episode. And have you noticed this is episode 498? We are almost at our 500th episode. I am gobsmacked. I can't believe there are that many episodes. It is so surreal to look at that number. And because of me having this new job, I have zero things planned for the 500th episode. If you have something you want to do, please let me know. Knock yourself out. It would be great. But me, I got nothing. There it is. All I'm going to do is say happy 500th to us. Yay. And then probably try and sleep. There it is. So have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. I'll let you know about when premium episodes are going to cut off as soon as I have figured out about Ernest and be good to each other. Take care. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com premium or via patreon.com craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>